Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Vasoor. I'm a consultant doctor and psychiatrist based in private practice in Harley Street, London. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Renata Saletzel, who is a philosopher and sociologist, is professor at the School of Law at Birkbeck College, University of London, and senior researcher at the Institute of Criminology at the Faculty of Law in Ljubljana, Slovenia. Her books include The Tyranny of Choice and On Anxiety. And I'm talking to her today about her new fascinating book entitled A Passion for Ignorance, What We Choose Not to Know and Why. And this is published by um, uh, Princeton uh, University Press. So, so Renata, first of all, um, you're talking about the notion of ignorance, not as a kind of innocent ignorance, although you divide up different kinds of ignorance, which is things we can't be expected to know everything about everything, but almost a kind of willful not knowing. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I'm speaking about passion for ignorance uh, more than will for ignorance because quite often people say that they want to know something, but then they will do everything not to know. And that's, you know, a phenomenon with, which psychoanalysts and I'm sure psychiatrists too are experiencing every day. So sort of I'm looking at this kind of uh, paradoxical situations where we claim, you know, that we want to come close to knowledge. And quite often for people, this might be, you know, some, something traumatic, which is why they find all kinds of ways to close their eyes. So it seems to me, and one of the reasons I'm delighted to be talking to you, that this is a very important subject at this particular moment in history for various reasons. And you illuminate some of, those, some of these in the book. One of them is the pandemic, um, the virus, because this is an unexpected event and came a little bit out of the blue. And for vast swathes of the population, they didn't know really anything about viruses and epidemiology and how to ensure you don't get the virus. And the whole notion of a lockdown came as a surprise. So suddenly whole vistas of things that we didn't know opened up. But it turned out that our governments didn't know. And even the supposed experts, the epidemiologists and the virologists don't know, it turns out, quite a lot of things. So it seems to me we've walked in, and what you seem to be arguing, into a kind of abyss of ignorance. Could you say something about the relationship between ignorance and the pandemic? Yeah, here we are encountering actually willful ignorance and strategic ignorance in regard to pandemic, because actually there have been many books written about the pandemic which might come. And like, for example, in 1994, Laurie Garrett, uh, she's a journalist working in the domain of science, wrote a book, Coming Plague, in which she predicted a plague like this. And there have been many women and men working in the domain of ecology, analyzing farming, for example, who were also predicting that a virus might easily jump from wild animals to domestic animals. And countries like America and even UK, actually a few years ago, were preparing themselves or they were at least you know, strategizing what would happen if a pandemic actually emerges. But all those things were forgotten in the last years or pushed aside, sometimes in a strategic way where governments, for example, contemporary American government, truly sort of did not look into some of the, you know, research that has been done a decade ago or so. And when you talk about strategic ignorance, you're talking about the notion of, of ignorance which might serve certain interests. And you've come up with some interesting theories as to why governments may have handled uh, the virus badly. Um, and it, it almost seems a little bit like a conspiracy theory because it allowed them to be more intrusive and, and the public panicked when things went badly wrong and the public didn't question when it allowed governments to be intrusive um, in, in things like a, a lockdown or intrusive in terms of tracing people. Could you say something about that? Yes, exactly. If you look at the United States or even UK or Brazil uh, or, you know, Russia, even, you know, China, where the virus started, governments in a variety of ways, you know, strategically denied, negated and ignored 
the virus and some are still ignoring it. So we can say that strategically for those in power, it was essential, you know, not to inform the public about what was happening, sometimes for their economic interests, you know, sometimes for their political interests. And as we have seen, a number of governments have actually used the pandemic to strengthen their rule and some of the countries are turning into much more authoritarian countries than they were before. So this is about the idea that ignorance is willful for a variety of reasons, and one, it might serve your interests to be ignorant yes. if you're in power. Could yes. you say, say a bit more about that? Yes, you know, when you are in power, for example, when you are a corporation, and, you know, a disaster happened. We have seen an, a number of disasters in the last decades, like the oil spill of uh, British Petroleum in the Gulf of Mexico and so on. For those corporations, it is, you know, a will for ignorance that we often observe for a long time. They, in a variety of ways, deny what has actually happened. And sometimes the question is whether the people on the top truly don't know, for example, what has happened, or, you know, that they just don't want to hear the information. In pharmaceutical industry, people would tell you that quite often, you know, people on the top don't want to hear uh, research that, for example, doubts the the power related the strength of certain medicine or sometimes this ignorance functions in such a way that people who figure out that something might be dangerous are too afraid to inform those to inform those in charge the other reason why ignorance and willful ignorance or as you put it in the book a passion for ignorance people who are driven to be ignorant becomes particularly relevant today is the internet and google and search engines and the amount of information and knowledge on the internet, often of high quality, though often of low quality, means that it's possible more than ever before to know stuff relatively easily. So the fact that ignorance continues or seems to be spreading or getting worse suggests that it's motivated in some way. It, it, that seems to be the thrust of one of your arguments. Could you say something about that? Yes, the internet is you know, full of cacophony of voices. And, you know, seriously researched information very soon, you know, has the same value for people searching around Internet than opinions of some influencers. So for a person, it is very hard to decide which information has a certain value where, you know, there have been uh, facts behind or there has been a serious scientific research behind and which isn't. And the subject is more and more alone in sort of making choices or, you know, making decisions whom to identify with, which is why in this vast sort of amount of information, People, on the one hand, are enclosing themselves into bubbles. They're more and more following the people who agree with them. And on the other hand, you know, people are actually becoming lost in, in this information. And I think that all this is contributing to us developing various personal strategies where we are closing our eyes in front of certain information. But the other point you make um, in the book is that sometimes ignorance is a helpful thing and facilitates things. There's a very interesting chapter about ignorance and love, about some research that you quote, which suggests that fall in love and to stay in love with someone, you're going to be a little bit blind to their faults. And there is some evidence that actually people who stay in love um, are, have a, an unreal, unrealistic or untruthful appraisal of their partner. In other words, they willfully... Uh, remain ignorant of their partner's faults. Um, so, so ignorance, um, you're, you're quite nuanced in the book, isn't always a bad thing. In fact, it may be a necessary thing to survive in, in many different aspects of life. Could you say something about that? Yes, exactly. I think too many times we perceive ignorance negatively. And precisely, love is about fantasies that we are, you know, forming in our heads 
about the beloved. And you know, today we, we can use technology uh, to survey our partners or we can search about them on Google uh, and so on. And quite often, this is not contributing to sort of having better relationships. We might sometimes actually try to know too much about another because a certain kind of a amount of blindness and in terms of how blind we are when we are in throes of passion, the romantic uh, fantasies that we create around beloved is quite necessary, which is why we close our eyes or you know, sometimes we truly try to tell ourselves stories that allow us to stay in love, even when the reality, for example, shows that our partner is maybe not interested in us anymore. Another field where I observe, you know, the importance of ignorance is actually medicine, where I think that sometimes for people coming, you know, close to some traumatic information, you know, this might be a moment where they just don't want to know or are trying to find ways to interpret this knowledge so that their well-being, their self-perception sort of is not damaged. Or, you know, when we are dealing with certain traumatic situations like the war or other types of violences, when we come close to something, you know, again, painful and traumatic here too, we encounter ignorance, which allows a person to somehow hold him or herself together, which is why my idea is that there are moments in our lives where closing our eyes, being ignorance might actually help us to survive a painful situation. So I think if I could try to capture, and you must slap me down if I got this wrong, the central thrust of the argument of the book is is that we're surrounded by ignorance, but we're always ignorant of something, and you believe that we should just be slightly more aware of ignorance as opposed to being blind to it, and it's perfectly fine to be to, to be ignorant of something um, as long as you're aware of, of what function that might might serve. Yes. Um, so so uh, did you want to say something about that? Yes, and respectful of someone who appears to be ignorant, you know, which is why in, in medicine it is important that doctors don't throw the, you know, bad news to the patient, but are, you know, kind of uh, uh, observing uh, how is the person reacting and are gently in, in informing a, a patient. And, you know, sometimes uh, inform a patient slowly, you know, and kind of... Uh, also not uh, increase the anxiety of the person, which is why uh, I, I think that um, what I say in the, in the uh, book, you know, sometimes we approach, you know, bad news as we approach unknown food. You know, some people might just start eating unknown food without, you know, questioning what it is, while others might try just a little bit and then maybe uh, go further and others might not do not want to try it at all. And so I think that these are different attitudes which we need to respect. Another important thing I'm trying to tackle is whether people who feel ignored uh, in their lives, who feel not acknowledged by society around them, rejected, left out, are in a way... Uh, embracing, you know, certain kind of ignorance uh, in regard to knowledge. So I feel that one need to link together this approach that people have towards information and knowledge, you know, in some way truth, and, you know, the emotional feelings people have, especially people who feel that they are totally, you know, sort of kind of uh, ignored by more general society around them, and which is where I speak about the case of the incels, you know, the so-called involuntary celibate uh, men who are, you know, finding their sort of milieu online and are, you know, quite often using very aggressive language when, for example, they are speaking about women who presumably ignore them. Or when I'm speaking about people who are sharing fake news around the internet, 
in which they actually do not believe. Uh, there have been some interesting research that some people who are very active online and are sharing conspiracy theories on top of fake news, they themselves actually do not identify with the theories they are sharing. They don't believe in them, but they find an enjoyment in, you know, creating, you know, pain or, you know, provoking people on the other side, uh, people with whom they do not agree, and to get some kind of attention through this sharing. Now, another um, nuanced point you're making is that the internet and, and apps can give us a lot of information about ourselves that normally we wouldn't have, like they're apps that measure how many steps you take in the day and so on and so forth. And you're making the point that sometimes um, excessive information about ourselves may not be helpful. So again, it goes back to the point that this point about ignorance is nuanced and maybe some ignorance is not a bad thing. There was an example um, that, that's around at the moment to do with psychiatry and psychology in particular, because a lot of apps that give you feedback about the quality of your sleep. Now, this is particularly interesting because by definition, when you're asleep, you're unconscious. You're not aware of very often um, how the sleep went. And we, we know that when people wake up the next morning, they're often very bad at appraising. They may, they may say they've had a sleep this night, but actually sleep laboratory research suggests they actually slept a lot more than they think they did. And sometimes what these apps do is actually they create insomnia because people are given feedback about how the sleep went and it's often not as positive feedback as they thought and they become a little bit overly obsessed with the quality of their sleep and that becomes a, a vicious um, self-fulfilling prophecy that they end up sleeping even worse. So you're, you're also pointing out that it's very important with the new powerful technologies available to us that we understand the open Pandora's box um, and that could be dangerous because some ignorance may be a better thing. Uh, could you say something about that? Yes, the example you gave, I think it's really wonderful because it creates a feeling of guilt. And, you know, it also for some might create a feeling that they are a failure. You know, there is like one thing which should be natural and that's kind of sleep. And we are even failing at that because there has been so much information about the importance of sleep. There have been so much information about the importance of a healthy diet, uh, exercise, which have all contributed to this vast machinery of apps uh, that are supposedly helping us achieving these goals. But I think that they are, on the one hand, creating certain forms of ignorance, where quite often, after we download those apps, we often forget about them. And sometimes we behave as if just having the app on your telephone is already enough, as if the app is doing the work for you. Here I'm using the term coined by Austrian philosopher Robert Fowler, uh, who invented the word interpassivity. You know, we record movies which we never watch, or we photocopy books which we never read, as if, you know, they are sort of read by the machine which photocopied them or, you know, just by having them, you know, somewhere on a disc is enough. We have, we are now ob not obliged to watch it. We can do something else because, you know, the, uh, the, the stuff has been recorded. And in some way we can behave like ignorant in this way towards our apps. Just having the meditation app on our phone might be enough. We don't need to meditate. The app is in a way meditating for us. However, all these apps are also sort of contributing to, I think, quite a lot of anxiety and sort of feeling of inadequacy when we are trying to measure everything in our lives from the steps to calories to how many minutes we work and how many you know hours we sleep we are sort of like kind of a falling into this neoliberal ideal and of a person who needs to be constantly productive and it's quite interesting how you know the current pandemic has shifted the ideas uh, about you know how our life should be organized in some people are observing that they have actually given up on, you know, this pressure to be constantly productive because we had to sort of endure loneliness, boredom, you know, enclosure, quarantine in the last months. Um, 
important um, points you make in the book is about the relationship between psychoanalysis and ignorance. And you talk a little bit about um, denial and repression as being very important in the psychoanalytic understanding of the, the patient's predicament. Um, so could you say a little bit about that? Yeah, quite often when a person denies something, you know, it is through the, this denial that the person is actually revealing something that he or she does not want to reveal, which is why already from Sigmund's point, uh, Sigmund Freud's times psychoanalysis has looked at denial, you know, as an important element of uh, psychoanalytic process. Um, you know, Freud, for example, was quite interested in one of his patients saying that uh, when he was describing uh, his uh, dream, that the mother, the woman who appeared in his dream is not his mother. Now, no one claimed that this woman would be his mother, but there was something important happening, you know, when the person denied this. Obviously, through denial, a person revealed something, and the person, of course, didn't know yet what, which is why, you know, denial in our discourse is something we have to pay attention to, or when we are listening to someone denying why the person has the need to deny. Uh, similarly, as, you know, we have to look also as psychoanalysts at sort of elements when the person claims that he or she is speaking the truth. Um, if, when we are speaking the truth, quite often it is not necessary to claim that we are truthful. You know, we might very well, very well hide something when we claim that, you know, what we are speaking is nothing but truth. Now, you also talk about, about Jacques Lacan, uh, a famous French psychoanalyst, and his relationship with Buddhism and Zen Buddhism and this notion of a passion for ignorance, which is partly where the title of the book comes from. Could you say something about that? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, a, a kind of an invention of Lacan after he was uh, taking the courses in Buddhism in the late 50s in France. Um, from his interest in studying how Buddhism perceives ignorance, Jacques Lacan sort of made a conclusion that, you know, in psychoanalysis, we have a paradoxical relationship to truth. And although people are often speaking about their passion for knowledge, and in his case, you know, in psychoanalytic practice, he was observing people, you know, passionately claiming that they want to know what is the cause of their suffering, what is behind their symptoms. However, he observed that actually people claimed that they wanted to know, but then they found all kinds of ways not to come close to, you know, the truth of their symptoms or whatever was behind their suffering, which is why he coined the term, the passion for ignorance, claiming that people will, will actually do anything, you know, just to sort of like continue maybe with their symptoms or sometimes actually not, they will not give up on their suffering, although rationally they very much hope so. And this led to a very interesting strategic technique in therapy, which I think you say comes from Jacques Lacan, which is that the therapist should also appear ignorant as a technique, as a, strat a strategy, which is if the therapist is as ignorant as the patient, it may help the patient discover something. That if the patient sees the therapist as all-knowing and having knowledge, then that can be counterproductive um, in terms of um, the patient's um, defense against knowledge. So I thought that was a very interesting idea. And, and we'll, we'll go on to the, the notion of ignorance at the heart of the medical consultation in a moment. But, but what are your thoughts about that? Yes, the psychoanalyst is not an authority who will tell the patient, you know, what is the cause of his or her suffering to, to give a quick interpretation or to give any guidance which is why the psychoanalyst actually has to restrain him or herself and not be a master. Here, the psychoanalyst sort of like needs to sort of persist in certain space of 
non-knowledge and allow you know the patient to work through his or her unconscious his or her fantasies desires drives uh, that's you know the the necessary kind of a position of ignorance that psychoanalysis sort of embraces on the side of the of the analyst especially psychoanalyst is not you know a coach a guru an advisor is definitely not you know a master or an authority although the patient perceives you know that the, the analyst knows something the, the analyst has to resist that position of mastery so I think this is a really interesting part of the book because I think it goes to the heart of medical practice. So every doctor is aware of the patient arriving in the consultation and the dynamic of the consultation at its root is the notion that the doctor knows and the patient is ignorant and the doctor then explains or gives advice. And and part of the frustration and you know burnout is now incredibly common amongst doctors is that um, it looks like very often um, the doctor is explaining the blindingly obvious. Um, if you want to lose weight, you need to eat less and exercise more. And and it's the resistance of the patient to the blindingly obvious that becomes a problem. So um, th there are patients that arrive in the consultation who are ignorant and want to be informed. But there are a lot of patients who arrive in the consultation who are ignorant and don't want to be informed. They, they As you are making the point in the book, they're defended against knowledge. They're actually motivated to stay ignorant. And I think it's a very useful idea that a lot, a lot of doctors are simply unaware of. Um, psychoanalysts and psychiatrists are aware of it to some extent, but medical doctors often aren't. Um, I, I wondered if you had any thoughts about that. Yes, uh, sometimes, you know, when doctor appears him or herself vulnerable, not simply, you know, an authority who tells you uh, what to do, uh, that might have a positive effect. Uh, I have a friend, a cardiologist, who herself has been struggling her whole life with weight. And, you know, when she explains her patients, you know, to lose weight, she often points out how hard it is for herself too, to lose weight, you know, how she struggles uh, with too many kilos. And, you know, I think she's opening through this self-revelation a certain kind of a point of identification where, you know, both the patient and the doctor are sharing something. Um, and I think that, you know, for doctors, admitting that they don't know is an essential step since medicine is developing so quickly there is no doctor who truly can you know be a possessor of all you know current knowledge of his or her field and we in medicine we also are dealing with truly you know the unknowns like you know the the genes the power of the genes or you know what is happening in our heads or other organs although you know genetics and neuroscience are often perceived in in a kind of a popular media as giving us you know certain clues about subjectivities there is you know an important element of the unknown which in the future I think will become more and more problematic where we will be offered more tests which will are which will presumably predict you know some future illnesses and for us it will be difficult to decide do we want to know or not do we want to know that in 10 years you know we might develop uh, dementia uh, do we want to know that you know we are sort of genetically kind of uh, maybe maybe predisposed for a particular illness when there is no medicine for example for that illness many people might decide actually that they don't want this information because their life you know will become too anxiety ridden if they have the information and they have no power to do anything and another very interesting area in the book is the notion that experts people who know or meant to know a lot um, true experts are actually very aware of what they don't know. And, and you mentioned that. Um, and I think this is also very interesting for doctors in particular, because every doctor who sees any patient is at some level aware of an intelligent doctor that there's some specialist somewhere or some research somewhere um, that knows more about the patient than you do, that you're, you're often 
um, operating um, with um, less than perfect information and less than perfect knowledge, particularly in a subject of medicine, where actually what is knowable is vast and beyond what is possible for any human being to know. So, um, and you discuss this quite beautifully in the book, this notion of containing your anxiety, having the, the, the knowledge that you don't know makes you anxious. Now, there is a sense in which, of course, you can um, overclaim, you can never want to look anything up in front of a patient um, and you just take a stab in the dark because you you deal with your anxiety about not knowing by pretending to be an all-powerful figure. And you mentioned a nice anecdote in the book where you were struggling to read Kant, a uh, famously difficult philosopher, and it was anxiety-provoking as you tried to read Kant and found it very difficult. But you dealt with your anxiety by persisting. Um, and this is an interesting point because obviously some people, some students deal with the anxiety of not knowing by cheating um, or giving up or um, finding shortcuts. So it's a very important point about the notion that expertise and, and academics who, who want to, to know have to struggle or contend with the fact that at some level um, knowing in the fullest sense of the word is actually impossible. There always will be ignorance. Uh, could you say something about that? Yes, and actually with the current pandemic, I think this unknown at the core of medicine is really coming at the forefront. Uh, and I think it's very important that, uh, you know, through this pandemic, we have learned how much we don't know since, you know, when we were listening to people working on viruses, they have been constantly pointing out and still are pointing out how much we don't know. And for example, in regard to the vaccines, which are now in production, you know, authorities, um, medical authorities are warning us and politicians too, not to have too quick expectations, you know, and to wait, you know, to wait for the all the important tests to be, to, to be done. And I think that that's an important moment since so many people are, you know, in doubt whether they want to vaccinate themselves or their children. You know, I think that, you know, an element of truth coming from medical profession and also other authorities about the, you know, the unknown uh, is important. Uh, I'm definitely, you know, a supporter of vaccination. However, it is interesting to sort of learn more about the psychological mechanisms which are guiding those who are, you know, against them or those who are afraid of them. And here, you know, some books in medicine have been, I think, doing good work. Uh, there is an Italian doctor who wrote a book um, on sort of like the the doubt about vaccines or the rejection of vaccines. His name is Andrea Grignolio. And, you know, the, his idea was that quite a lot of people who are opposing vaccines are opposing it not out of lack of knowledge, but actually out of saturation with information. Again, information from, you know, various dimensions, directions, you know, they might not uh, distinguish between scientific information and some information they randomly found on internet or which was sort of like sharing uh, among, uh, you know, certain influencers or people who are, you know, very present in online circles. And a lot of people who sort of had all this information started, you know, doubting vaccines because of certain anxiety they had about their own bodies. So in midst of all the informations, there was a certain kind of a subjective trauma linked to how they perceived, you know, themselves as very responsible for their own bodies, how they were trying to do everything right by, you know, having healthy diet, exercise, and so on. And many of these people identified too much also with the idea of doing everything natural. There was a certain kind of a glorification of nature in, you know, in the beliefs of some of the so-called anti-vaxxers. Uh, but one of the things that I think beautifully comes through 
in the book and why, why the book is a very unusual book is that people are always looking for knowledge. They're looking for authority figures who claim to know. So governments want to appoint experts on their committees who are going to advise them about the virus who tell them that they know stuff. And the public wants to go and see doctors who claim to know. And one of the points you're making is the true expert is aware of what they're ignorant of and is honest about that. But there's very little currency out there for people to, to fess up to what's not known. We're, we're, we're always driven to pursue the person who claims to know with absolute certainty. But the more authentic knower, as it were, the more authentic wisdom is the person who is very aware of what is not known and, and is very open about that. But they're not going to get appointed on government committees or they're not going to make a lot of money in private practice. I wondered if you had something to say about that. Um, yes, unfortunately, that's true. And, you know, also we don't have many politicians who say they don't know or they don't know, um, you know, what they are actually doing or they are just guessing, you know, what might contribute to, you know, well-being of people. And I think that uh, here, you know, when people are anxious, sometimes they're searching for leaders or to, they try to identify with leaders who appear not to have doubt. But people working in the domain of, of psychoanalysis know that we should be often kind of cautious when we meet someone who doesn't have doubt. You know, a person might have a, you know, a a psychotic structure, you know, the lack of doubt, the lack of, of questions is something that psychoanalysts would be, you know, can, we, we would be sort of like questioning what is behind this lack of doubt. And I think that truly, I think that maybe this pandemic will allow us uh, to embrace doubt and to also sort of like more openly speak about the lack of knowledge. In a way, one of the take-home messages of, of your book, in my opinion, is that ignorance should be taught. We should be taught a bit about the different forms of ignorance um, and, and, and learn more about ignorance, which sounds slightly paradoxical. And there's a lovely um, section of the book which defines different kinds of ignorance, which I'd like to read out. So you say a number of authors have tried to draw up a taxonomy of ignorance. Anne Kerwin, for example, distinguishes six domains where ignorance is at work. Number one, all the things we know we don't know, which is referred to as known unknowns. Number two, things we don't know we don't know, unknown unknowns. Number three, things we think we know but don't, errors. Number four, things we don't know we know, tacit knowns. Number five, taboos, forbidden knowledge. And number six, denials. Uh, then you say Nancy Tuana offers a more concise four domains of knowledge. One, knowing that we do not know yet do not care to know. Number two, not even knowing that we do not know. Number three, not knowing because privileged others do not want us to know. And number four, willful ignorance. So one of the points your book makes is when we burrow into ignorance, it's actually a very deep subject. So are you saying that ignorance should be taught? Yes, and there have been in the past even attempts to used, you know, ignorance as a kind of a subject in medical schools so that, you know, future doctors would have a special subject where they would be taught about the, you know, the power of the unknown in medicine. And uh, I mentioned also a case of a Slovenian uh, professor of medicine who had a kind of um, idea that he, would giving, he was giving negative uh, points to students who you were, were guessing too much in answering the question. You know, his idea was that it is better to answer nothing, to leave, you know, the question unanswered than, you know, to guess too much. Unfortunately, the medical school kind of rejected uh, this professor's uh, type of uh, grading. And um, as I mentioned in the book, there has been a course on ignorance at the Columbia University where people from various uh, fields of science were asked to express uh, to students, you know, how important the unknown and the admitting of sort of the lack of knowledge is in their field of study. And um, there's some prophetic bits in the book, but the things that happened after the book was written and published, which are kind of um, prophetic. So one, one lovely bit in the book, again, 
is about um, which predicts um, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement. So again, I want to read this section. Um, it says, collective forms of ignorance are also widespread in the developed world. Charles Mills has done extensive research on white ignorance as an example of systemic group-based miscognition that has subordinated the non-white population over the past few hundred years. The white population has been able to keep its supremacy with the help of white normativity, white narratives that dominate in the society, as well as various forms of social amnesia. Through these strategies, white ignorance allows a continuation of the systemic inequality of the non-white population, as well as disregard for racist language and practices. Now, I'm not entirely sure that I entirely agree with everything that you've said there, but what is really interesting is the notion of ignorance about the past um, coming back um, to, to people saying that we need to um, be uh, aware of where we've covered up things in the past. And that has become a real tension in, in, in modern debate. And people are pulling statues down. Some people are saying we should keep the statues up because we just need to be more aware um, of what happened in the past. Um, so the, this notion of ignorance as, as politics seems to be important and touched on in the book. Could you say something about that? Yes. And if you look at the police uh, violence uh, in United States and also elsewhere, against the non-white population. This is exactly the case where we see all kinds of forms of ignorance at work. You know, this police violence throughout, you know, the last decades has been something that has been pushed aside. You know, the governments have closed their eyes. There has been sort of like a, an erasure of this, uh, a political erasure of this, of this problem. And I think that, you know, in a similar way, the whole kind of uh, racist history that many countries are, you know, dealing with now has been also, you know, part of this, you know, like a white ignorance, which I'm quoting, uh, you know, from Charles Mill in, in the book. So we're, I think in this moment that we are living, you know, we are kind of rediscovering, uh, you know, a certain knowledge which existed, but, you know, has been willfully ignored. Um, given that you're kind of like an expert on ignorance, I'm wondering about the personal impact on you, because you, you're very sensitive now and aware from the book, and I've become more aware of, of how we're surrounded by ignorance. Um, I just wonder what the personal impact has been on you, because I've become aware since reading the book that every single conversation we have in a way, are people pretending to knowledge they don't really have? And in fact, normal normal conversations become impossible if you were to try to tell people um, or explore um, the sense, the, the amount of ignorance there is. Um, and yet there's a sense in which it's a better conversation to have to, to confront our ignorance. But everyday small talk, everyday conversation, um, ignorance is embedded within it. So I just wondered if it, it's made your life a little bit more difficult than what the personal impact has been um, given, you know, most everyday conversation is actually impossible if you were to pay too much attention to the huge amount of ignorance that's just been covered up. I would say the opposite. It sort of made my life a little bit easier uh, because uh, I don't uh, obsess so much, you know, about ignorance because it's so overwhelmingly present. Um, I don't deny that, you know, there are you know, corpuses of knowledge to which we have come and, of course, which might change, but that there exists, that there are uh, some facts and that, you know, science has contributed, you know, greatly to our understanding of ourselves around our, the world around us. Uh, so I'm, I'm not kind of glorifying ignorance in regards to knowledge, you know, I'm, I'm still, you know, passionately in kind of understanding what is happening around us. However, um, I perceive, you know, after I wrote this book, uh, ignorance as something that we need to, in some cases, also respect, and especially not force uh, sometimes other people to, to deal with, you know, certain information if that information is not too painful for them. And that's where I think where I'm myself, you know, becoming, um, you know, sort of like an embracer of, of ignorance 
in our private lives, not in general, but in some particular moments, ignorance might be of benefit to an individual. I want to stay with the idea, though, that um, it, it makes life a little bit more difficult. You're, you're kind of saying that your life has become easier. Again, there's a lovely passage in the book um, where you say, when Jacques Lacan spoke about love, he pointed out that in love we give, or promise to give, what we do not have, and we seek and see in others what they do not possess. Um, so I think that's a lovely way of saying something um, about the tension between love or you know normal functions of life and um, being aware of, of ignorance, um, how, how ignorance helps us get through life. Um, I, I want to also um, talk about the fact that I think that there's a sense in which when you, we, we, you read this book, you become suspicious of the education system. The education system, elite institutions, of which you are a member of, of, of some of them, um, promise something. And what is the promise? The promise is you come along, get a degree, leave with a qualification, and now you know something. And that is actually really dangerous in my private practice, because it's private practice, I see many successful people, they've often been to elite educational institutions, and because they got an elite result or an elite degree, they they have give, they kind of given up ever really trying to find stuff out because they believe they now know. They've been given a badge, and that's the most, one of the most dangerous things of all. Education is a lifelong learning process, and true wisdom, going back to Socrates, is knowing what you do not know. Is there a sense in which the education system has lost its way? It's handing out, in exchange for money from students, um, badges or diplomas which say you now know something. And that's actually very dangerous. Here I agree with you completely. Unfortunately, the education system has become, you know, now like a, sometimes a money-making machine or it's too kind of obsessed to sort of like being a, a kind of a corporation. And yes, unfortunately, I think that uh, sometimes it gives an illusion of knowledge to the people who obtain a diploma. And I hope that, you know, there will be, you know, a change in, in this perspective. Sometimes, you know, in the last years, we have also pushed aside uh, humanities, uh, social scientists, sciences, we have pushed aside humanities and social sciences, you know, thinking that only with hard sciences we will contribute to development and, you know, allow people to um, make profit with their diplomas. Uh, maybe the pandemics will open up the doors again for rethinking, you know, what is to be a subject, you know, what do we want from society, what kind of society we envision. And to answer to these questions, we will need, you know, humanities and social sciences, and we will need to understand also the power of ignorance. So I want to, um, we're running out of time a little bit, um, and uh, just read the final um, paragraph in the book, because I think it's a beautiful um, end and takes us back to um, the pandemic, our anxiety. And I, I want to pose a final question to you, is what do we, what should we do in the face of ignorance? I think you're saying, we should be more aware. But for example, when you realize you can't necessarily trust the government's advice um, or even what the scientists are saying, um, how what should we do in the face of uncertainty and and not knowing? Um, you, you could play safe um, and um, work things out for yourself. But maybe what does playing safe mean? So what should we do in the face of ignorance is the question I want to put to you. Um, but I just want to read the, while you think about that, the final paragraph in the book. As this book has shown in times of crisis, people individually often embrace ignorance in order to avoid facing up to traumatic events or feelings. For some, however, this ignorance does not involve not knowing, rather it requires surrender to an endless stream of information. As the coronavirus pandemic was rampaging around the world, a friend of mine became a connoisseur of the news. He appeared to be the most informed person I knew about what the science was saying, what protective measures that doctors were advising people to take, and what was happening with the infection around the world. Then one day, he admitted to me that reading all this news was not a search for understanding, but rather a desperate attempt to find proof that the pandemic was not real. So, over to you. What should we do in the face of ignorance? Yes, to a point, you know, get informed. Um, 
read the the newest research about the virus. Uh, but then also to a point, you know, like continue with our daily lives, of course, taking all precautions, wearing masks, be careful that we are distancing from others, you know, that we are protecting the vulnerable. But I have observed with myself uh, during the lockdown, I wrote a short book in Slovenian language about the pandemics and how it affected intersubjective, you know, lives and how people started perceiving others as enjoying at their expenses, you know, also why there was so much aggression at some moments or hoarding uh, and also denial of what is happening around. But even for me, after I finished this little book, which just came out in Slovenian language, and it's, it, it has the title uh, Human to Human Virus, if I'm translating it quickly, I lost kind of the desire myself to read too much about pandemic, as if there was a saturation that I experienced after studying, you know, the previous pandemics, this pandemic, and almost want to take a little vacation from, you know, thinking too much about what is happening around me, which doesn't mean that I'm denying the situation or that I'm not, you know, looking at what science is saying. However, not much has been, can be done at this moment. We just don't have yet the vaccine. We don't know enormous you know information about this virus we are learning but for a normal person like me i'm not a scientist working in this domain sometimes you know to go through that there is you know to start you know reading novels or just doing something that goes in different direction than you know the pandemic world but it seems to me that your book is proposing we, well, one option in the face of ignorance is to be curious be curious about the world, um, try to find stuff out. But but um, um, a, a lack of curiosity um, leads to um, unhelpful ignorance. Um, so be curious, but also be aware of what is not known and be a bit more comfortable. Don't react with anxiety and then flee into false knowledge. Um, be, be more comfortable with what is not known and, and acquaint yourself with what is not known. Question what the experts say, so that um, you become aware that there is a lot that is not known about many things, um, and it's it's why it's wise to be aware of that. You won't get conned uh, by people if you're if you're more aware of what is not known and can face it without being anxious about that. Would you? I agree. I agree completely. You have pointed it perfectly. Well, um, thank you very much, uh, Renata. Just to run over. Um, uh, the, the, the title of the book is A Passion for Ignorance, What We Choose Not to Know and Why by Renata Saetzel, and it's published by uh, Princeton University Press. Uh, uh, Renata, thank you very much indeed for a lovely interview, and thank you for a wonderful book. Thank you.